But without any further delay, let's get started. So we are on episode number 13. This month, we are talking about talent. So everything from recruiting to um, um, to hiring, to landing a job, to you know managing employees, managing colleagues, maybe the relationship with your boss as well. So everything that involves uh, talent. And today, we wanted to talk about our experiences. So myself and Dave will kind of as you mentioned, shoot questions back and forth to discuss some of the good, bad practices in the industry. And then next week, we'll have another guest. So we're still trying to confirm a guest. We do uh, want to talk to someone from the industry that is an end user. So if you would be interested, maybe as an announcement right now, if you're interested, send us a message. We definitely want to talk with someone who's you know currently hiring maybe or managing employees. And once again, it's going to be the same format as we do each week. So if you're interested in that kind of a conversation, make sure to send me or Dave a message. That being said, Dave, um, I want to start us off where, you know, every good story begins at the at the very beginning. So you must have gone through dozens, hundreds, hopefully not thousands of interviews, but certainly many interactions with you know, potential employers or employers that you've accepted the offer from. Um, I want you to maybe give us your impressions on the current practices, but more importantly, from your experiences, what were some of the, um, I guess, the good takeaways, the bad takeaways, and what were your thoughts on what could be done differently? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I I appreciate it, uh, Vlad. Uh, So as I was telling Vlad before the show started, I have certainly been on one side or the other of an interviewing table or process, uh, both from the talent side and from like a a hiring manager or Mm -hmm. part of the hiring team, certainly hundreds of times. Um, I've I've had responsibility or worked with, I think, at least the last two companies where everyone that came in um, for an interviewing process, I I was generally part of that, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. And they kind of varied by companies, but, but at some point, you know, you sat through a couple of dozen or a hundred of these things. And I I feel like everyone certainly knows if interviews are going well or, or if they're going poorly. And I think it certainly becomes, you know, a, on the interviewer to kind of help set the tone and and help set to make sure everything is at ease. So I think last week, uh, Chris talked something about being respectful, right? And so when I show up to an interview, I certainly hope that the person who's going to interview me is like on time and has read my resume and has done, and maybe has a list of questions or they've got a rubric and there are some questions and we can talk about kind of free flowing questions versus rubrics of questions um, a bit later. But like just general preparedness and I on the other side, you know, I on both sides of that desk generally try to be as prepared as possible, you know, for me, if I if I'm talent, if I'm walking in and that is, you know, inclusive of you're going to go, you know, work a job as a systems integrator and you're going to go show up on site, you want to put your best foot forward, you want to make sure that you are prepared for what is happening. And so, you know, you're going to show up early um, you know, you're not going to be hung over from the night before you're going to generally be prepared, uh, and, and look pretty good. And I think all of those things are important. And on the other side, I think it certainly becomes a, the interviewer needs to be prepared. They need to have spent time to at very least 
have read your resume. Um, I would imagine many of the people that we're talking to, especially on LinkedIn, you know, you guys have a LinkedIn profile. I would imagine that someone would have gone through and kind of perused that, or maybe you've connected via LinkedIn and you know those folks. And so you, you've had some sort of like back and forth interaction. And so I think setting the stage is a big and important part. And I would say specifically within probably the last four or five months when the market has gotten extremely hot. And I think we talked about this. With, I, I feel like we probably talked about it with everyone, right? The, the, the timeliness and brevity in length of interviews are extremely important. So if you're going to go and have an initial phone call, you know, now is not the time to wait a month or six weeks before you have a phone call with a second person or you lay out what your hiring process is. And you should certainly have a hiring process laid out so everyone knows what the steps look like. Um, if you're looking for someone and you're honestly interested in bringing this person on board, kind of from first phone call or at least first on-site interview, through offer should certainly be should certainly be within the month you know ideally we're closer to a couple of weeks where you can say yes this is the person i want they either fit within the hiring bands or i know what their salary requirements look like i'm going to put an offer in front of them so that they can either accept or not accept and we're not going to string everyone else along what are your thoughts i guess i i really liked your point on the length of the interview and i guess not just from like a process standpoint, but duration, right? So I've, again, I'll, I'll throw in like my experiences. I've had interviews where obviously the, in the initial phone call was half an hour mm -hmm. and then you go on site and I've had anywhere from like an entire day to just an hour, right? And so I always kind of reflected back on what format I was a lot more comfortable with from like both sides. And so like, I'm curious if you had any thoughts as to what like maybe an ideal um, kind of at the same time, like giving enough time for the candidate to see the site, because I think that's also important yeah. as mm -hmm. questions, obviously, about the job, the projects, the successes in that um, in that role. Uh, so what would be like an ideal maybe interview structure, right? Is it like a series of like one phone call and an entire day, one phone call and then like three, like one hour blocks spread out? Or is it just like half an hour, then one hour visit and done? Yeah, so, uh, so Vlad, I, I think this will not surprise you, and I don't think it'll surprise anyone who initially signed up for like a 35 to 40 minute stream, and now we're up to 90 minutes each stream, and we have to cut ourselves off. Um, I, I don't necessarily do great with brevity, so the concept of slamming in everything in half an hour for me on either side would be difficult. And, and I should make the caveat before we get any further. I think it depends upon where in the career you are, right? So like mm. if you're a fresh junior engineer out of college, you're looking for your first job, that becomes very much like gut feel, right? Like maybe you know what a PLC is. Maybe you don't know what a PLC is. Maybe you've been to a manufacturing facility. Maybe you haven't. And that becomes a, we accept that they have some sort of technical aptitude because they have managed to survive engineering college. And they're interested to come to work for us. So if we like them enough and we think they're a good cultural fit, then we're going to offer them a job. And that could be, you know, an hour or a couple of hours of interviews and lunch. And so, so personally for me, if we're doing on site, I are like, if we're inviting people out and they're going to drive out there or fly out there, I always like to include some sort of meal or, or coffee, mm -hmm. something along those lines outside of the office. Cause it's always interesting to see how folks interact kind of with the rest of the world. Uh, yeah. And so I think the more senior you get, 
or the more potentially technical on the technical interview side you get, the more important, the, the longer the interviews are going to be. So if, if you're going to, you know, go and look to be, you know, a director of engineering at a 300 person systems integration company, I'm sure you're not going to get by on an hour of phone calls and like lunch, right? Um, yeah. Unless the folks had worked with you before, I think the, the more senior, the more valuable the, the role, the longer you're going to spend. But generally speaking, I would imagine most roles should be able to do some sort of phone call up front. If you get through that round of interviews and you like them and you're a top three or four candidates, then it becomes, okay, let's have you come out for half a day and half a day is you're going to come. We're going to give you a tour where you're going to meet the team. And I think meeting the team who you're going to work with is very important. You're going to meet the team. You're going to be able to walk around. You're going to have a conversation with the hiring manager, um, maybe HR, maybe a third person. Uh, you know, some I've been in interviews where it's one-on-one. -on -one, and I've been on interviews where it's a minimum three. And I think a lot of that is based upon uh, like, like, like company requirements, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that you're going to go out for half a day. You're going to have, you know, an hour-ish conversation with these folks. You're going to meet the team. You should be able to have a conversation with the team to understand what that looks like. They should be able to walk you through what a theoretical normal day is going to look like. If there's a floor or if there's a site close by, maybe you get to go out and see that, especially if you're going to spend most of your time there. And then you're going to have a, a meal. And uh, I would imagine most people by that point in time, are going to know that it's it's either like an immediate yes, you know, I certainly want to work with this person more, whether it works for this role or not, I don't know, or it's an immediate no, you know, they're not a cultural fit, maybe their technical skills aren't up to par, maybe, you know, it just, maybe it just didn't work with the team. And I think finding that appropriate cultural fit is, is very important, especially when teams are growing quickly, especially when uh especially when we're all working remotely as well yeah and that too i guess brings a different dynamic to all of that right because you, you want to do as much as you can over the phone obviously and sometimes you do have to hire obviously i don't know how it works for traditional manufacturing sites right now but uh you probably still want to fly the person in but i know multiple systems integrators that just hire purely on you know phone interviews and so like it's it's changing, i think it's, I think I guess, it's like difficult i i think yeah. i think it's difficult and i think it depends upon the role that you're hiring for um mm -hmm. if you're looking for someone to come in and do some specific work on contract then i think you can have a phone call you can set up the contract and if for whatever reason it doesn't work out that's okay but I, I feel that it's difficult to have only phone interviews. So, yeah. but you know that I worked for a systems integrator. We were 100% remote. And despite the fact that we were 100% remote, uh, we always went and sat down and talked with someone and met them face to face before we really? made a job offer. Really? That's, I would not have expected that because I, I, I guess I've made hiring decisions that were remote. So. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it depends again, like the size of the team and the cultural fit and what, what's important for those groups. And when you're hiring the core, I think it's important to be able to meet the person. And I mean, I, I think you can only do so much. Like I've certainly worked with people for six months or a year and like something happened either within their life or otherwise. And it's like, man, 
what happened from the first, like the first six months are really good. And it's almost like we flipped the switch and they're, they're a completely different person. So for me, being able to have those face-to-face conversations have a lot of value. Vlad, as you and, and listeners know, I spent last week on, on site with a, with, an, with a client and I spend a lot of time on sites with clients because the value of being face-to-face I find is more than worth, you know, the hours in the airport or the drive because you learn things about people face-to-face that you wouldn't know, um, that, that you wouldn't know otherwise. I, I would also like to make the point that I think the, the, the face-to-face meetings and that is probably more important when you're looking to put these people in front of a client. Like if you have a very technical person and they're just going to go hammer C-sharp and they're just going to build a system for you and, you know, they're not going to get in front of the client and they're just exceptionally good technically and you like hire a scrum master to keep, a, to keep someone between them and the client because they just don't deal well with clients. I, I think th- those, are, those are different thoughts and, and conversations. Like where does the yeah. person fit in my organization? And yeah, where, where does the person fit in my organization? I think becomes important. Yeah, for sure. And I guess to that, uh, to that point, I did have some learning experience, so to speak, where you know we brought on board a person based on a phone interview alone mm-hmm. and then you fly out to a client side because it was a client facing role and obviously it's i wouldn't say that there is like negative um like i didn't have any negative sentiments based on that but perhaps different than what you would expect and so like for sure like the preferable way is to um is to, is to meet the person but as you know it's not always uh, feasible especially right now and as you know, a lot of employers are trying to cut down on costs, right? And if you're starting to fly out five to 10 candidates, like it becomes a little bit difficult. But um, I guess as you go and you interview more and more people, you become better at identifying exactly what you're looking for. And as Chris mentioned, I think part of the problem that we had is that we were not crystal clear on what we were looking for. And so we made, you know, some of those, uh, I guess, hiring mistakes. But yeah. No, no, I was going to say, I think that that happens to everyone and it has to become a question of, do I want to put, do I want to put this person in front of a client or an end user because they are representing, you know, myself and they're representing the entire company when they're out there. And I've worked with some really talented folks that under no circumstances, do you send out on site by themselves? Like just under no circumstances, do you send them out on site by themselves? And it's nothing against them. It's just that how they speak as an engineer, as like as like a technical SME and how end users are going to respond to that are two completely different things. And you just have to you have to understand where everyone fits. And I think that that becomes very important. Yeah. What are your um, I guess a slight side note? You mentioned, you know, being interviewed by one person versus multiple. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, having this practice. And again, I guess I'm personally not, um, how to say it, not a big fan of sitting your candidate in a room with like five of your employees. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like it personally, like it wastes a little bit of time, right? Because you, you do contribute all those resources to just listening to the candidate for at least like two hours. But at the same time, like, how effective is that practice? Because I, I guess I feel also a lot more pressure when there's like five people at once. Um, 
asking questions ad hoc uh, at certain points in time, but also they're very different experiences, right? And you're starting to like try and read the room because there's someone from like business, somebody from, let's say, engineering, someone from like HSE, someone from quality, and they're all obviously have different priorities at the manufacturing side and it becomes like very difficult to kind of tailor your thoughts in, in real time. Yeah, what no, are your absolutely. Thoughts about so that? Um, I think, I think a couple of things. So I, I went, I, I had a very good like three panel interview with a, you know, one of the, the largest distributors um, in the U S some number of years ago. And it was a three-person interview and they had a rubric and they had to go through the rubric and then they could grade the answers. And they do that for fairness of, you know, for fairness all across the board. And for them, the reason that they had three people was because they were like corporate mandated, right? So, so the corporation said, you have to have three people so that you have three independent points of view um, as, as you go through this process. And with those guys, all three really great guys um, like they got together exceptionally well on the opposite side, kind of like, like you were mentioning, Vlad, where if you have like five people on the, um, if you have five people on the other side of the table and they're all from different departments, I actually find that very telling because very quickly you'll know if everyone is on the same page or if there's like a huge amount of internal strife when you are. You, there's like a huge amount of internal strife within the organization because people are talking over each other and there are other issues that are going on. Um, hmm. So I think that those are very interesting. I would also say that when it's like a one-on-one, there's a much higher opportunity to like miss something. And then like, even if there's two people in the room, you have someone to have a conversation about it. So like, let, let's say, you know, Jordan and I were interviewing you, Vlad. And I feel happy to throw Jordan under the bus if, if he and his family are actually watching this uh, on uh, while eating dinner. But let's say Jordan and I were interviewing you. You know, we ask you some questions, you give us some answers, and you know, we have a back and forth conversation. And at the end of it, at least you, at least the person looking to hire can have a you know conversation with the other party in the room. And that, mm-hmm. that, in my mind, significantly reduces the opportunity to miss something, um, be it technically or culturally or otherwise. So I think that it's important to have, you know, someone to say, you, you know, kind of like check you of, I love this person. I think they're great. Or I hate this person. I don't think they're great. Or it's kind of like, meh. Like if you have one of those three responses, I mean, if you don't think the person is a right fit. And that's your gut reaction. I always go with my gut reaction. I've, I've never hired someone who I didn't have, who I had any doubts about and not regretted. Like I've always regretted it because there's always some issue further down the line. Um, but no, overall, I think having like multiple people in there is good. Um, for, for me, when I go and have a conversation with these folks and and it may be like a function of me as Dave, or it may be a function of where I am as in my career. But like, if I'm having a conversation with these folks, I think of it less of I'm trying to like completely sell myself to you. Like we have had to have gotten to a point for me to get flown out here. At this point, it's like a two-way conversation where yes, there is some selling of me to you, but man, like you also need to sell yourself, your facility, your organization to me, because I'm probably going to have three other job offers, right? Right. Everyone's going to get lots of job offers. So it's very much a two-way conversation. And when there are large groups, I find it very telling, you know, if people either work well together 
or if they're interrupting people and don't work well together, um, there is there are there are lots of things that you can notice about what's going on on the other side of the table that is valuable for you when you're making your decision. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting perspective. I guess I've always you know taken notes in uh, in interviews, but it, it's it's hard to always look back at how you look you know as an interviewee once uh, once the process is done. I almost feel like there's probably like some studies done around, you know, the psychology of interviews and like how they are conducted and like what the optimal number, like you said, like, I guess two plus there's a benefit to, uh, to being able to like take notes while somebody, someone's talking, but, uh, like it, it's a very interesting process. And I'm, I surprised, I guess, to see that there is no consensus Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to interviewing and how vastly different it is, you know, from one company to another. And I think, um, you know, for the, the biggest reason of that is because people like for the most part improvise, like how, on how they have been interviewed on how to find, you know, the, the next talent. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I don't know if that we'll ever get to this like perfect sweet spot of an interview, but, um, I want to throw in like, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I, I was going to say, so So there are like lots of, of thoughts and I really liked Chris's episode. So if you guys didn't listen to episode 11, you guys should go back and listen to episode, or was that 12? You guys should go back and listen to episode 12. Uh, last week where we had Chris on, where, where we talked about, you know, his thoughts on, on interviewing. So I would say before that, um, I, I had always heard people kind of refer to the star method and the star mm -hmm. method is kind of what Chris was saying didn't work very well because it's very scripted but but it's like tell me about a time or tell me about your experience it's kind of those open-ended questions and the thoughts were basically like you tell the people the situation you tell them the task that you were associated with the actions you took and the results and i have certainly found that as a positive step other than like saying are you a team player and if you show up to the interview, the answer is going to be yes. Like you could be the most lone wolf developer out there, but man, if you don't answer yes to, you know, I'm certainly a team player, then it becomes a function of why did I even kind of show up to, uh, why did I even show up to the interview? So again, it's one of those, you have to ask the correct questions. And, and I have found that, you know, maybe having some, some sort of set list of questions or types of questions that you can ask from helps to structure an interview, especially for larger companies, but then digging in and asking kind of follow-up questions, which is, uh, which, which is what Chris had mentioned last week is, uh, is very important. Um, do, do you, Vlad, have like a, a positive or or like a specifically positive or a specifically negative experience with, with any types of specific types of interviews? Well, you know, now that you've mentioned the star method, I, I feel that, you know, intention really matters. And what I mean by that is when you get to an interview and they very openly tell you, we're going to go through the star method with you. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. you immediately, you almost like, you know, like you're excited for a new job. You're excited to talk to an employer at the same time. You're a little bit stressed and then they hit you with like, we're going to go through the star method. And you already like, it feels like your enthusiasm level, like immediately drops. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. like you've been through this before. Maybe if you don't know what the star method is, then you're a little bit, oh, like that, that sounds like a pretty interesting, you know, like format. But once you've gone through it a couple of times, it just becomes a very, um, I wouldn't say tedious, but the way it's framed, I find by um, managers who use it very by the book. 
mm-hmm. it becomes very rigid, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, like you said, feels robotic. People just read the questions that they see in the, like, again, that they've noted either before or right from the star method, instead of trying to probe for different maybe opinions or trying to learn about you. And I think at the end of the day, people want to, uh, to some extent, like talk about themselves. And mm-hmm. so if you ask questions that like provoke conversation ver- versus very rigid kind of by the book, like, well, tell mm-hmm. me about like the, uh, your positive qualities. Tell mm-hmm. me about your drawbacks. Like, it's just like, it doesn't feel like natural. Cause you know, that I know that I've prepared those answers and I'm just going to also sound like very robotic regurgitating what I've prepared versus if you ask me about like projects, like, well, you know, what have you done? Like, how did that go? Like, what did you use? Why did you use that? Like, how did you interact with your coworkers? Like, you know what I mean? Like it becomes a lot more, like you said, as a conversation versus anything else, but to maybe answer your question from like negative standpoint, like I told you, I think when I had way too many people in the same room and then I would get, you know, bombarded with a bunch of like different questions. And obviously, again, like I I was still consider myself early on in my career, but um, to be asked, you know, one question about like a technology that I've used and then like the next follow-up is like, well, what were the repercussions on like quality? Like, obviously I can give an intelligent answer, but when like questions are really coming in, uh, you know, as a, as a machine gun, metaphorically speaking, it becomes like really difficult to like keep track. And so people like just keep switching it on you. And it, like, obviously maybe that is the tactic that they're using to see how you would perform under stress, but it just becomes very uh, challenging. And I would say like, I would get a negative experience in that, uh, that kind of an interview. And also I feel, um, I mean, like in general, I guess like two like how to say it? like obviously questions that talk about projects versus questions that are like very narrow focus like do you know how to do like this then it becomes like very difficult to like even have a discussion and i think it all comes comes down to like you said having a conversation about things versus just like do you know x do you know y and then it's just like a very open like yes no almost like kind of trying to wiggle yourself out of the the question <laughs> type of a scenario so obviously like how questions are are kind of so i I would agree with that i think that being able to have a conversation is good i think that that is important i will kind of like point out and this may was probably more 10 years ago uh when when i was first kind of running into the concept of the star method of i kind of like it and that is certainly kind of like talking, you know, explaining the overview, saying what you did, and, you know, especially kind of saying what the end result is. I feel like those are all important stages of telling a story. And so whether I'm talking to a client or an end user, if they're asking about an experience, I generally follow that method because in my mind, it makes a lot of sense to be able to logically lay out what uh, the the example of what you're talking about Mm -hmm. what are um i want to shift our conversation just a little bit um i was wondering if you were a candidate right so Mm -hmm. put yourself back in a candidate's shoes you were looking for a job in the current market but you know let's for example kind of um say that you don't have the network that you currently do what would be your steps in finding a job, right? Like which 
maybe methods would you use? How would you position yourself to find an employer and ultimately land a job? Let's say in control systems, you're maybe a one to three years of experience in PLC HMI development, whatever that may entail. Yeah. So I would say kind of that one to three years is, is like a tough spot, right? So, cause you're still kind of early career. So unless you, unless you find the right recruiter, who's looking for that position, it's generally going to be difficult to go reach out to recruiters. So if I were, if I were based in one location and, you know, one to three years in, if I either wanted to work for an end user or a systems integrator, I would probably start taking a look around the area that I'm physically located in and starting to reach out to those people. I mean, you can certainly go look at the, uh, go look at the job boards, but generally if uh, I, I, and this is the, this is what I tell folks who are early in their careers. If you're looking for a job, you know, go in and reach out to, you know, the, 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 the controls manager, the operations manager, the maintenance manager, engineer manager, something along those lines and kind of frame the conversation of, Hey, I'm still relatively young in the industry. I would love to find an opportunity to work for you guys, but I don't necessarily know if I'm qualified, you know, can we have a conversation? Can we go do lunch? Can we go have coffee? And you can let me know, what I would need to do to qualify to work for one of these positions and start to have a bunch of those conversations. And that will certainly help you build your network. And that will certainly help you kind of figure out, you know, one, do I want to work for this place to the qualifications that I need to actually qualify for this job and start to give you kind of that, that real life experience in a very uh, low pressure, low profile scenario. Would you reach out regardless if they have openings available? Absolutely. Would, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Because again, yeah, I'm not suggesting you go like blast a whole bunch of resumes in there. I'm saying you should reach out to the specific person either through LinkedIn or find their email and, you know, explain this is who you are. You would one day like to work for a company like theirs. And can you have a conversation or can they help direct you so you know what you need to do to qualify for one of those positions? And that is generally what I tell people either looking to get into the industry or very early in their career if they haven't, uh, if they haven't networked well. So I, I will kind of like continue that through mid-career if, uh, if you will allow me, Vlad. Mm -hmm. So with that, hopefully you've spent some time building your network Hopefully you have spent some, yeah, hopefully you spent some time building your network and some successful projects. I think certainly starting mid-career, you can strategically look at recruiters. Um, as either they have needs posted or you might be talent that they're looking for that they'd like to represent and kind of go have those conversations and utilize those people as an extension of your network, as well as networking, you know, with the people very similar to, uh, to, to what I described early career, hopefully you will spend some time networking. And so you can reach out and you can have some conversations about, Hey, I think I'm looking to make a move or Hey, that we had layoffs. I'm looking for the next opportunity. Can you help direct me for that? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is certainly the easiest route to, uh, to continue to find a job. Uh, I think probably maybe six weeks, eight weeks back, I ran a poll on LinkedIn asking people 
a similar question. Like if you are looking to, if you are looking to, you know, start a new job, how would you find a new job or how did you find your last job? And an overwhelming percentage could be was so more than 50, I, I think it was like 70 something percent said that it was through networking, be it LinkedIn or otherwise. Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I haven't seen those results, but uh, I'll take a look for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I think Matt, it's posted on the site. It did. Matt asked a good, um, made a good point. Uh, well, an interesting point. One non-technical interview I question I tend to ask is, what is your favorite thing? Could be a movie, hobby, etc. It helps break the ice, but also really helps me understand how they communicate. It's made interviews much more pleasant and started off great. And I don't know, honestly, that's a that's a tough question to uh, to ask a candidate. I don't know, like, what's my favorite thing? That's a. Um, well, he said maybe, on like, non-technical of... interviews, Vlad. So I'm not sure oh, that you would necessarily. I'm not sure that hmm. you would necessarily uh, qualify for. But no, that that is, that is very broad. That uh, that is very. Broad. I'm not even sure how I would answer that. Well, I guess like he uses it to break the ice. I, I don't know if it's uh, it, it seems to be effective. Uh, I'd probably throw that in and the next time I interview somebody just to see what happens. But, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting approach. I mean, like, I think as we have, as we were discussing, you know, for me, it's always asking about the projects, asking about the resume. If it's a very like technical job, right. If it's uh, like a technician or engineer that needs to know control systems, I found what really works well for me is asking like general questions. Like, let's say, how would you, uh, that are relevant to the industry that they are going to be working in, right? So if it's a, like, let's say an operations uh, engineering role, then you have to be on the floor, right? And obviously machines go down. And so like one of the questions I would ask, like, well, where would you start troubleshooting a specific issue, right? And it tells me a lot from the standpoint, if they tell me, for example, the first thing I'm going to do is open up my computer and connect to the PLC, I know that it, like, it already sets off a metaphorical like red flag in my head because I think before you do that, there's a number of steps that you can, you know, talk to the operator, like ask questions about this problem. How did this like problem came to be? And this maybe indicates that they're not, um, I wouldn't say like resourceful enough, but ultimately think like very narrowly, right? Because they are the expert in controls they're going to always like in a way turn to controls to solve the problem uh, versus trying to communicate to somebody who, like I said, would have more information. But anyways, I guess that's like one of the things that I always ask and I usually follow up, right? They would tell me like, okay, I'm going to talk to the, to the operator. And then we're asking like, well, what would you be like asking them for? Like what kind of questions would you come up with? Or, you know, what would be, what would that interaction be like? And so, I can tell quite a bit by their answers how, you know, how they would be able to resolve this problem or have like many challenges, right? In that specific like context of the facility. No, absolutely. And I would say troubleshooting skills are, I don't know, maybe the hardest to come by or maybe the least common that, uh, I mean, good troubleshooting skills are some of the least common that, uh, that I see. And it, the as as i like to to tell you know control systems engineers the code didn't change right like we should be go we should go look for the the low hanging fruit you know go talk to the operators go check the alarms 
uh, go, go kind of check all the, the normal things because I'm confident that the code did not change in the PLC. It's the same. I wouldn't be know, confident. I don't, I don't you know. I, I changed code like at night and things go wrong. Okay. Like so, uh, so, so if I ever go to a facility that Vlad is pushing live code in production, the first thing I'll say is someone give me a Windows laptop with logics on it. I'm going to go check Vlad's code. <laughs> we'll, we'll go roll it back to the uh, to the previous uh, iteration and see if it unbreaks everything. No, I mean, like, I, I guess, like, for me, it's more like uh, just like to get to know the person. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you no, kind of you, you feel them out. Like, what are they going to do first? Right. Because I think um, like that's why I, like I was actually thinking about this point quite a lot. But I don't know if you know, like the Rockwell slogan, which is like, uh, listen, think, solve. Right. Like one of their slogans, I think, in I one of the platforms, like they I'm would actually say, that. like, like, okay. listen, think, solve. And I think like okay. it's an underrated statement in the sense that you most of your time in figuring out a solution shouldn't be trying to like dig through like existing things. It should be like literally pausing and trying to understand the solution. Right. And maybe the 10 percent is solving uh, the problem. And so I guess that tells me a lot by. Uh, by asking that question, what the person is going to do. But uh, to your point, I guess, like, in most cases, code does not change. And I think, like, by just saying something went down, you don't have enough clarity to make that yes. assumption, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, in my eyes, and I guess in every facility that I've been to, you really need to understand before you, like, what happened before you mm -hmm. go into the code. And again, like, operators... Uh, once again, from my experience, are usually the people to um, to kind of go to the first. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, talk to the operator, understand what's going on, see if you can replicate the problem, and then see what the difference is between that problem and what the normal operating procedure is. And yep. if you can do that, you're probably 90% of the way there. What are your thoughts, Dave, to come back to our previous candidate discussion you know, the applicant sites. So again, I've, uh, you know, I've used them both as an applicant and I've used them both as a, uh, I guess, internal recruiter. Uh, so posting job descriptions on a website or even, you know, whether that is LinkedIn, whether that is ZipRecruiter. Um, and there's, I guess, a number of variations on that. Like, what are your thoughts on maybe the dynamic that happens on those websites and at the same time do you think it's a good uh let's say time spent going through them as a candidate and obviously as a as an employer yeah so i i'm not sure anyone likes those vlad i, I think that they are kind of i think they are a function of of where we are as a society and i think it's a function of uh, you know, a couple of things. So you one, your large corporations are probably legally required to post jobs. And so they have to post jobs internally and then externally. Um, so they have to post jobs. And then you're going to find a lot of smaller companies who are, uh, you're going to find a lot of smaller companies who are posting jobs and like that is what they're doing. And they're just kind of spraying and praying that, that a qualified candidate uh, reaches their doorsteps. And so I don't think that either of them are, are a great thing. Um, it's, it's certainly not what I would kind of make the suggestion to, uh, to, to do and to spend your time working on unless you like want to work for a large corporation and then you're going to have to go through their pool. Um, generally, I'm not a fan of anything 
that I can fill my information in once and apply to 50 jobs, right? Like if it's just all copy and paste or like I can build like a, a I, I don't remember the last time I did it. It would have been probably a decade ago, but like you used to, and you probably still can like build your profile and it's like, click every job you'd like to apply for. And it's like, well, I'm just going to apply to all of them. Like I'm looking for a job. I'm just going to apply to all of them. So uh, for me, it's, I have been, most successful having conversations with folks and networking to find those opportunities. I mean, there are, you're certainly going to reach a point uh, for some folks where it's a, I'm j- I just have to apply for jobs and I'm just going to kind of get bounced around like a ping pong ball. And eventually the goal is to come out and, and find a job and, uh, and find an opportunity, but I don't think anyone likes them. I think it's just kind of uh, kind of where we are it's very impersonal. And when you have to make all, uh, like when you pull your, when you pull the information out of the resume and you fill it into the, uh, candidate tracking system or the automatic candidate tracking system, there's an, there's a recruiter acronym for it that, uh, I I think it's ATS. I think it's automatic tracking system or automatic candidate tracking system. Uh, but like I, it, it makes everything more difficult, especially because you don't know if someone actually saw your resume on, uh, on the other side. So for some people that that's certainly going to be the, the best opportunity. And certainly for some companies, you need to build a resume that works best in those, the, those automatic, the ATSs. Um, but for everyone else, if you can find a way to, you know, get around that, to have a conversation. Uh, so, so I have found that that always works for me. And I realized that many of the people who are watching this may be engineers and they're super or, or listening. And they're like, why does Dave say I have to keep talking to people? I just, I want to apply. I want them to send my, my technical test over. I don't have to talk to anyone. And I got to show up on site for like 45 minutes to meet the team and shake someone's hand. So uh, I think there are a couple of different. That would be ideal. See? So, so, so we have both sides of the pool. Uh, for me personally, I would prefer to, to never have to, uh, to, to send in an application. Again, I would much prefer to, uh, to have a conversation with people to, to understand their needs. Although, Vlad, I will tell you this. Um, there, there's certainly been more than one time where I, I showed up for a job posting to talk about doing something. And I ended up getting offered a completely different position that they didn't know they needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened. Uh, that happened to me too. Um, I, I think like once, because again, I think those systems fail for all the reasons that you've mentioned and then some. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think it's very difficult to judge in general a candidate based on the resume and a half an hour conversation, which may or may not even happen with you know the hiring manager. A lot of times, it's just going to be like an HR discussion. And then obviously, like in, in some circumstances, the HR manager will also get maybe half an hour in. But um, at the end of the day, I think it's difficult to make that call uh, for better or for worse. And you might be, I would say, in a lot of cases, um, I guess, disappointed, but in certain cases, pleasantly surprised. And then you might have either like a different role or like you said, a completely different position that you might not have even known, right? Because at the end of the day, in this industry, I think technology moves so quickly that if you're, let's say, a systems integrator, somebody that comes in and on the resume says, I don't know, let's just list technologies like Alan Bradley, Siemens, like whatever, 
they might come in and show you that they're much more experienced, let's say in ignition for whatever reason. And that could be like one new angle that you can add to your uh, systems integration offering. So uh, it's definitely uh, something that I've seen happen multiple times. But no, I, I mean, I completely agree that those uh, portals are typically not ideal. Um, I did find some success applying to companies directly, right? So I think there's maybe even a disconnect between what they post on their own website and then what they post externally, because I think, you know, at least their own postings, they manage a lot closely than what goes off on the external platforms. And I think it's also hard to tell because sometimes those external platforms just siphon out, you know, the job postings. And then for better or for worse, when you apply, then your resume just goes into the void. No one ever looks at it. But typically, if there's a uh, if there's a good recruiter on the company side, they will go through. And obviously, after it filters through their automated system, um, they will kind of look at your resume at the very least. But uh, Sean made a couple of points. So he said, uh, well, he made a point that uh, he had a six-hour panel with five business area managers, and it was a great experience. I mean, um, I think, you know, obviously, I'm not sure if, he sa- if he's saying that with the five business managers, like all at once, I would assume Oh, not. I think it was all at once. I- I'm really? pretty sure he's told me this story, and it was five people all at once. Yeah, I don't know how I would feel hours. about this. That that seems like a very tedious discussion. And obviously, like maybe uh, depending on who they're looking for and what kind of a um, character they, they're looking to get after this interview, I think, again, referring back to what Chris was saying, it's important to be very clear who you're trying to get. But this kind of an interview to me uh, will be like, let's say a red flag versus someone like Sean really thrived in that environment and kind of was, I guess, um, a good candidate for them and for their culture. So better or for worse, just a different experience. Uh, he said, I will not ever apply on customer site. I have never been hired from one ever. Again, I've had success with them, but I would say that the uh, percentage is very low. Again, I was early career. So I think it's mm-hmm. a little bit easier, right? To Because I, I think the barrier is not that high. And so as long as, like, again, in my situation, you have a double E bachelor's uh, degree, then you can pretty much apply. And like, you know what I mean? Like, they're not going to check extensively all of your experience, but obviously uh, the success rate was very low, right? So you'd have to send out like a hundred resumes to get maybe like five callbacks and get like two, three interviews. And that was kind of the number game. So Um, Vlad, that, that actually brings up an interesting point. So what are your thoughts on listed like desired experiences versus reality of what people actually need to succeed in positions? Hmm. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, most of the time we bucket like one to three years is early career. Right. And then four or five years up to, you know, whatever is mid career. And then I find that the, the senior or, yeah, I find like the, the seniors, it's generally more in a person by person basis, as opposed to you've just ground through a number of years. Like, like at some point, the additive hours and years make you much more valuable th- than a, you know, fresh junior engineer. But to be a like very good senior or lead engineer, it becomes more on based on the person and what they like to do 
and, and how they work on things like that. So, so what's your thoughts on, uh, what's your thoughts on, you know, expectations or, or listed expectations versus reality? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you've said it uh, fairly well, I guess, early career, um, I look a lot more for attitude, right? So someone who's eager to learn and kind of understand systems, obviously, there would be some maybe technical questions thrown in, but they would be fairly simplistic. I typically want to just know, I guess, like my biggest concern for someone coming in early career is like safety and just like following, you know, set procedures, and what I mean by that is, again, in a control systems environment, one of the biggest fears that I have with any hire, but usually, obviously, early career, you don't fully understand those dangers, but it's electrical safety, right? And so I'm trying to understand, is this person going to be responsible enough around like machinery and electrical equipment to be able to do those tasks again? Because I think early career, you're still very much on the floor, you're going to be, you know, troubleshooting things. If it's not directly, then you're going to, you know, if you're an engineer, then maybe you're going to instruct technicians to measure certain things and hopefully they know, but you should also know, you know, the danger. So it's enthusiasm for the job and it's responsibility. So being able to like trust you with a set of tasks and you asking questions rather than kind of going in blindly and like doing something that's going to get you hurt, obviously get the company in trouble, so on and so forth. Um, on the like technical side, like I said, I don't have a lot of expectations. I think that, you know, looking back at my own experience, I personally didn't know what a PLC was when I landed a control systems uh, job, right? Um, I honestly like came in completely blind. I was not asked like a single questions, uh, a single question on the technical side. And that's why I typically don't expect a whole lot. If you do say on your resume that you've got explicit experience, right, on programming PLC HMI systems, then I might ask like, well, what kind of projects did you do, right? And kind of, again, like we talked about earlier, I'm not going to ask like, well, what instructions would you use in this case? But I will most like ask, well, like, how did that project go? Like, what did you like learn from that? Or like what failed? And I would sometimes like probe people for, you know, if they tell me that they've like built this project, like tell me like in detail, like how did, like, what was the challenge? And uh, like, what did you have to do? Right. And then I'd say like mid-career, I'm looking, like you said, more for someone who can work or collaborate a lot more that wouldn't be like my expectations like i said at the beginning or early career but you need to be able to a certain extent like inspire others to work to get work done um i've heard from like many employers it's also where the distinction between just being someone who executes on what you're given and being able to bring ideas to the table, right? So when you're uh, an entry-level engineer, again, based on my experience, typically your engineering manager or your lead engineer, whatever that may, may be called, is going to pass down tasks, right? Like go out and do like A, B, C, D. When you are more like mid-level career, you start to find projects on your own, right? So you've you, you know the process well enough, you know the control systems well enough, you have contacts within the industry and you can start saying like, 
look, I can execute this, this, and this. It's going to cost like maybe this much. It's going to take this much time. It's going to help us improve the process. I wouldn't expect that person to have the uh, entire project ironed out, but maybe, like I said, start bringing ideas. And a question that I've heard very often for like a senior engineer and that I've kind of asked as well is, you know, like what kind of ideas would you be uh, willing to bring forth, right? So you show the person the manufacturing side or the company, well, like, what are your thoughts? Like, are, are you, like, does this seem like a, a place you'd want to work with? Uh, obviously, uh, as a starting point, but like, what are your thoughts? Like, would is there any like areas that you could see that you would potentially propose to improve, right? And generally you see patterns, someone who has worked in maybe like a packaging division would focus more on, let's say like your case backing, like your palletizing area, someone who worked more on the process side would have, would talk more about yield. So th that starts a conversation. And um, like, obviously candidates who are later in their career, I think it becomes more of a question of, uh, for me at least adaptability, right? So what I've seen typically is people uh, express the willingness willingness to learn and adapt to the to the new environment but i think asking the questions around the topic of are they really looking to because again i think it's it's hard to find candidates with the exact uh, skill set that you're looking for at that benchmark and so what you're most often kind of looking for is a person who can solve problems, right? Like that's the number one criteria that we're going to bring up to speed on the technologies. And I think it's figuring out if that person, again, like in a technical role is going to be willing to do that, to make those changes and put in the effort to, uh, to transition into that. No, no, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. Um, I would say that your, your comments of like a senior person being able to estimate hours and like going and proactively selling uh, to the uh, to the end user while they're on site. I mean, I think that's like the holy grail uh, for, for most, especially systems integrators of finding someone who was actively willing to go out there and, and help, you know, find options and, uh, and propose those solutions. Uh, and then I would also say kind of along those lines of, you know, sometimes you're going to get a job listing and the job listing is going to list, you know, every PLC currently behind Vlad's head. And you're like, man, if I only had experience on that Opto 22 Groove Epic, I could apply for this job. Mm -hmm. And, but you have experience on the Allen Bradley and you have experience on the Siemens. And I think there's some Omron somewhere up behind your head. Um, and, and like, if you have experience, okay, it was directly behind you. I, I just, I, I looked through you, <laughs> Vlad. But no, like if you have experience on a variety of platforms, most platforms in this industry once you know one or two and you're a good engineer, you can relatively quickly go ahead and pick up those other platforms. And so if you get kind of like the smorgasbord, then it's a, okay, I'm going to apply and we'll see what happens. Uh, and then I have had a lot of conversations with recruiters. And I think Jordan kind of mentioned it a couple of episodes ago when he talked with um, you know, part of a recruiter does is kind of set realistic expectations. No one other than Vlad is going to have experience on and like be exceptionally competent on all of these PLC platforms and on a dozen SCADA and ICS platforms because you, you can only know and learn so much. Um, 
yeah, you, you can only know and learn so much. So it becomes a, a function of, you know, finding the right people with the specific skills. And if you're asking for the smorgasbord, I wouldn't necessarily let, you know, a lack of Omron or a, a lack of a particular SCADA if they're asking for a bunch of them, or you've got five years of experience, but they're asking for six years of experience, stop you from, uh, from applying. Yeah, I, I feel like based on the thought we could almost make an episode of good versus bad like job postings but we're not gonna do that and blast some employers i think you know to comment on your uh thought on multiple plcs or multiple platforms in general Mm -hmm. i would tell you that i don't even consider myself an expert in all of these as you said it takes a lot of time and dedication to i think become an expert on a single platform let alone um, you know, two, three, or four. And for better or for worse, I always, um, how to say it, like quote this, well, not quote this, but like tell the story, but there's, uh, you know, in Rockwell, sometimes when you call their number, right, when you have the support, uh, the support line, you can be directed to someone who has been working on specifically like Rockwell motion controls for the last like 30 years, right? And you'll talk to this person and even that person will have to ask you a lot of questions. They're obviously like an expert in that, but they still don't have like every single answer. And they're, they've been doing motion controls for the last 30 years. So I think for better or for worse, there's just no way to learn all of these systems. And to be quite honest with you, like for me, when I go to, or when I've been to interviews at sites that have more than two platforms. And again, there's a lot of, like we can have a discussion around why that happens. And I guess like very briefly, I think because in different industries, sometimes you're just locked into whatever is being sold to you, right? Like if you're starting a brewery, then a lot of the equipment is going to come with sometimes Siemens, Mitsubishi, Amron, and you just don't have the, the funds or the opportunity to switch them to a single platform. But the point I'm trying to make is that if they have a hodgepodge of different systems and they have like, five different PLC environments, then to me, that's a big red flag, right? Like to me, that means that um, you're going to spend a lot more time fighting fires than trying to optimize your system. And usually like my question would be, well, how do you upskill all of your people? Because again, if you're an engineer or a manager at that site, then it's a big challenge trying to bring everybody up to speed. That means you're usually lacking behind in, you know, your system upgrades. You have to constantly send people to uh, you know, to train them. If you have a technician coming on board, by the time they get up to speed on those like five platforms, if they actually mm-hmm. learn them well, um, I think what's generally going to happen is just going to, you know, shift from one problem to the other, never really learning the platform. And like I said, it, it's not going to be an opportunity to grow the site. It's going to be more a job to, you know, like maintain it. And at the same time, I think that means that instead of having like four or five subject matter experts on a single platform that know the, the site extremely well, you're going to require a team of like 15, 20 experts that, as you said, like, although they know the platforms, there's going to be this, um, how to say, like sharing of experience, but it, it's hard. It, it, it's really hard. And I think you can reapply your skills from PLC to PLC, but it's going to be those little details. You know what I mean? Like those mm-hmm. little, like those modules that you have to know, the vendors that you need to know again. And you have this like broad contact list for each system. Then you start like going into uh, your SKU management, mm-hmm. right? You have these different components, right? You have like five platforms of PLCs in your site. 
while your stock room is now like 5x of absolutely. components and like so, that's a whole yes. other like mess yeah go, no, sorry, no go. absolutely so, so I, I would i i have worked with end users to significantly i mean generally to standardize not only on one platform but on one SKU. Yep. so like oh or like you've got a compact logics and everything in the system runs that that same compact logic so you can have one on the shelf and you've got a control logics and so everything that is above a compact logics runs a control logic and you can run it all on that or you've got the same you know siemens s7 you know, variant all the way across the board. And you've, that way you can have like a set of, you know, PLC, a set of my, uh, of, um, of IO if something goes wrong. And I mean, I've seen facilities save hundreds of thousands of dollars at a minimum of, yep. of, of carrying critical spare parts um, just in standardizing it. And man, you, you can, that that is that is a lot of money and uh, spending a little bit of that money to get off a variety of platforms and it almost doesn't matter what the platform is as long as you pick one and standardize on it and commit to going down that route even if it costs a little bit of extra money to uh, to get all your machine builders to uh, to go down that route in the uh, in the future it uh, yeah. just so much time so much headaches. And it's, it's a lot of that kind of sunk cost you don't think about. So now your control systems engineers spend all of their time fighting fires and never really yep. get to learn or never get to really do the upgrades. And so you're spending a half a million dollars a year on systems integrators because your internal folks are, you know, fighting fires or they're managing the folks fighting fires because you just have so many problems and you, you can't see the forest through the trees. Yeah, and you see, like, now that you mentioned that, I think to our previous discussion, that's the kind of a mentality I would expect at a, at a senior level, at least, right? Like someone who's applying to do that job, he's not going to just fight fires, but he's going to stop and think, like, well, what are we doing here? Like, let's maybe find a better way to either consolidate this, but also, like, the basic questions, like, well, if we standardize on a platform, like let's standardize to reduce, you know, the spare parts that we have in the in the maintenance shop. And not like that starts to click once you have that maybe three to five years of experience. Obviously, it varies from person to person and environment to environment. But that's a business question that is not necessarily related to a technical expert that's going to program your PLCs and HMIs. But it's something that starts to click once you kind of tie the uh, you know, the different ends of a, of a business entity. It also, also comes down to understanding, you know, like the product that you're making, the downtime you're incurring to maybe test a different platform, your conversion, right? So um, I mentioned maybe putting forward the projects that you're looking to execute, but at the same time, thinking about costs that are not directly related to, let's say the hardware and the software that as a, maybe as a junior engineer, you understand, but you start thinking about like, well, what is it going to cost from like personnel standpoint? What is it going to cost from like a downtime standpoint? Because the factory is losing money, you know, by implementing your new initiative or your new camera or whatever system that you want to put in. So like thinking strategically beyond just the uh, the technical side. We had a comment from uh, Sean on YouTube. Uh, Same Sean? Sean? No, different oh, okay. Sean. Uh, he said we were asking for a master electrician with a class uh, CDL uh, license, wastewater experience, scatter knowledge, UF radio, RTU, Wonderware, PLCs, oh, water analyzers, uh, uh, cameras for $28 an hour. And I think ah! like... 
there's there's That's a lot amazing. of that going on in the industry and i think like what yeah. typically happens if i may comment on that before I let you jump in dave is that people set you know unreasonable expectations and what happens as a result of that is they've got people who you know tweak the resumes to include all of those keywords and they can at a very high level mention some of those platforms and some of those requirements but when it comes to executing the job it becomes extremely difficult right so again you can say that you've learned plcs after watching a couple of videos on youtube but having an actual plc at home and like building a project whether that is like for personal use or going to a manufacturing helping them is a completely different story right so again I, I think it, there's a range in every skill set right no no completely i would say that most of those the, those items that Sean listed off are probably in and of themselves worth $60,000 a year. And yeah. uh, when, when you start to add those, it becomes, it becomes either we are not realistic in who this job is for, or we have one very specific person who has wastewater experience and also, you know, in the past drove a truck and has a CDL. And this is the way that we're going to make sure that this one specific person gets the job. But yeah. I, I think that as we, as we mentioned earlier, you know, you need to be realistic about, you know, what you need and we won't even get into the compensation for it, but you need to be realistic about what you need and can you find that person? And when you can't find those people, what sort of upskilling do you need to do? And I think, uh, I think Chris, and I feel like Jordan, I've certainly talked about the need for organizations to upskill and to invest in their talent. And that is not something that we, we've certainly talked about. And I know that we're running well, once again, a little short on time as I feel like we are every week as, as we're really getting into the meat of it, Vlad. But, um, but I, I think that, you know, companies need to invest either in like continuing education requirements um, or, you know, we want to send you to conferences. We want to send you to classes. We want to buy these classes so that you can learn more because we want to continue to find ways to upskill our people because best case scenario, they stay with us for their career. And worst case scenario, we have a significantly more talented, happier, uh, uh, happier employee while they are here. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, Dave, I think it's time to wrap it up. Any final thoughts i think that we've talked through a bunch of different uh key takeaways maybe for me if i want to summarize that is or maybe learning points again from past experiences is number one is preparing a maybe a scorecard or a profile who for whom you're looking for right like a very good description yep. uh, number two is being prepared on both sides right as a as an employer as well as a candidate going through at least a very brief um, a research phase where you kind of write down some notes about the job, who you're going to talk to and research that person a little bit. Uh, then it's, uh, what else did we talk about? The red flags, I guess, during the interview, both, uh, well, red flags, or I guess like green flags and how, what kind of questions you ask, like how do you formulate the questions yeah. to get the best experience? And of course, that's going to vary based on, on the role you're hiring for. We also talked about like a, a very big red flag, I feel, is the difference in platforms, but I guess ultimately boils down to different skill set mentioned on your uh, resume versus on the job profile and how do you um, interact or make a, an informed decision and kind of balance out what's 
uh, what you truly need versus what you can actually get, if I if I may put it that way. And I think Absolutely. it's important, like I said, going back to the number one point is be very clear on who you're looking for, setting the expectations right so that you don't fall into the trap of, again, I feel candidates kind of like um, listing skills that they don't truly have and you also don't truly need. So those are the key takeaways for me. What about uh, what about you, Dave? No, absolutely. I would say that those those cover almost all of it, uh, as no one should be surprised, lad. I would say to just to add to that, that when you're interviewing it, I would go in and have a conversation and realize that as much as you are selling yourself, the company needs to be selling them as to why you should go to work for them, especially in the market that is as hot as it is now. And we need to find ways to significantly shorten our interview process. Uh, yeah, we need to find ways to significantly shorten our interview process. And all, again, to, to reiterate the point of everyone needs to be realistic about job postings and the kind of like perception versus reality. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it with everyone needs to be a little bit more realistic with what they're asking for on uh, on, on job postings. And Vlad, I will uh, I'll let you close us out and we'll let every uh, every one of the great folks who have been listening to us for an hour and 10 minutes go back to the uh, the rest of their lives, especially Jordan's family. I hope dinner was good, guys. Sure. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching, listening and uh, commenting on the social media platforms. If you have any other questions or want to discuss this further, feel free to reach out to either me or Dave. And we will be back next week at 6 p.m. So exactly the same time, 6 p.m. Eastern time, uh, 3 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. And we will still be talking talent. We're looking for a, a guest to bring on board. I've reached out to a couple of people. But if you are interested in coming on the Zoom call and speaking with me and Dave, please make sure to message us. And uh, I guess that's pretty much it, Dave. Any, any other thoughts? Um, no, no, I, I like that. Uh, so Vlad and I are getting ready to to work on our next theme. We've got a couple of ideas of mm -hmm. themes. Um, I guess we can ask for some feedback. So we're talking about potentially bringing some like OEM vendors on. We're potentially talking about doing, you know, a series about how we sell within systems integration. Um, th those are a couple of themes that we have going plus a couple of others that we should probably keep under wraps for the moments. But if you guys have any thoughts or comments on those, or you have another great theme uh, that you think uh, we should devote four weeks or so of time to uh, please feel free to message us on that because we are, we're very interested to know what, uh, what you guys like and what you don't like.